Hello and welcome to Dog-Eared Pages with UKYA authors Lauren James, that's me, and Lucy Powery, a podcast full of book recommendations and writing advice. This is the first episode in a new regular series from us and in this episode we're going to be introducing you to who we are and discussing the books that have shaped us. So Lauren, would you like to introduce yourself first? Yes. Uh, this is very exciting. I've been wanting to do a podcast for so long and I'm really happy that we're actually doing it. Uh, so I'm Lauren James. I've written five books now uh, and I've been writing books since I was at uni and I usually write science fiction. Uh, my first book was The Next Together and I got a book deal for that before I graduated and since then I've written The Last Beginning which was a time travel adventure, The Loneliest Girl in the Universe which was a space thriller the Quiet at the End of the World, which is a kind of uh, hopeful look at extinction. And my new book, The Starlight Watchmaker, which is a little space novella. I don't want to say my introduction won't be as exciting about that, but I really <laughs> don't write about <laughs> extinction or space. <laughs> um, I'm Lucy Powery, and you may know me as a blogger and a booktuber. I run a booktube channel called Lucy the Reader. Um, and recently I have released my first book, The Paper and Heart Society, which is the first in a new series for teenagers about a book club and a girl called Tabby who joins this book club and it's all about fitting in and finding your people and learning about yourself and it's also a very bookish book. Full of um, book recommendations which makes yeah. it perfect for this podcast. <laughs> there are so many book recommendations in it which is why I'm so excited because we read so many books and we've been friends for so long that it just was really natural for us to join together to talk about all the books we've been reading. Yeah, I met you before my first book came out in 2015. So you were just like a very precocious blogger at that point. And were you even writing then or were you kind of secretly writing but not mentioning it to anyone? I actually think that we met before that. I think we met just really you got your deal. So I think we met maybe then, but I think we knew each other before. So I got my book deal in 2013. So we could have potentially known each other that long. That's crazy. <laughs> it's a long time. <laughs> so we have called our podcast Dog-Eared Pages because we like reading, but also we have dogs. And so I feel like for this first episode, we should probably introduce our animal friends <laughs> as well. You tell us about yours because yours is the most recent edition. <laughs> yeah, so I have two dogs. Um, I have a Springer Spaniel and a Jack Russell. But recently there has been a third addition to the family and I have a working Cocker Spaniel puppy called Digby. I mean, he's about 20 weeks old and he is the love of my life. He's um, so he cute. Is he really is the best. I love him so much. And you also have an addition to your family. Yeah, I got my uh, first dog for myself. Uh, my parents have got dogs, but I got my own precious dog about four months ago. His name's Oliver. He is a very naughty cockapoo mongrel mix. And yeah, he takes up a lot of attention. I'm currently distracting him with peanut butter. Um, but he is the light of my life. And I am definitely... Uh, he deserves to have a podcast named after him. Although I do have to admit to a dog ear related crime 
I gave him some buttered toast and I dropped it on his head by accident and he got butter all over his ears and he didn't notice and he was very upset when I tried to wipe it off. I can testify to his naughtiness because he recently tried to pull my tights off my feet as I was oh, wearing yeah. them <laughs> and I haven't been able to get over it since. <laughs> he does that all the time, it's very disappointing behaviour. <laughs> so between us we read pretty much everything and um, so I read a lot of classics and I also read why I think that's something we've got in common um, and I read a lot of adult stuff as well um, and then you also have very specific tastes in reading. Basically I read everything but I'm my main interest is like sci-fi and genre fiction because that's what I write uh, but I do read a lot of YA as well which we, is definitely where we meet in the middle. Um, broadly speaking we have read everything that exists I think. Um, I do read some classics but not like with my actual eyeballs I tend to listen to them as audiobooks. Uh, since I got Oliver I have I have, like spend like two hours a day walking uh, so I usually listen to audiobooks or podcasts when I'm doing that and that's one of the reasons that I w really wanted to start a podcast because all of my favorite podcasts are about books and about reading and writing and like I come home from my dog walk and I'm so excited to get writing that I just really wanted to have a go at making one of my own. So today we're gonna start our first episode by talking about the books that have shaped us. I think that it's one of the things that I always want to know when I meet new people is like what their favorite books are and why they like them because it tells you so much about them as people so I thought it was a good way for people to get to know us if they have never heard of us before. So I think I might start by talking about my favorite book because it's basically the thing that made me a reader it's probably the reason that I'm talking to you now because it had such a big influence on me um, and that book is The Princess Diaries by Meg Cabot which I read when I was nine for the first time. That is crazy. Uh, yeah how I, has it been out that long <laughs> I don't know for one but also I reread it a few years ago and there was so much that I missed kind of things that a nine-year-old should not be reading about that I just <laughs> it went completely over my head which is really funny but I love the series so much and I think Mia was such an important character for me to read about at an age when I was growing up she's in a world where she fits in and then suddenly doesn't fit into either her royal life or her everyday life and I feel like that look at being a teenager is so unique that it at one it is intensely readable but two it feels like you grow up alongside her because there's like adult sequels now as well aren't there where she's like literally fully grown yeah so which the is quite rare for YA books I think the adult sequel is basically everything <laughs> I reread <laughs> it a lot because I feel like when you go on that journey with a character then you meet up with them again a few years later and it's like they never went away it's mm. like it, it just feels like you're picking up something that's been with you that entire time and I would really love to see this done more with other books as well so I also read her mediator series uh, when I was younger and I read those as well Yes, they were so good. They're so good. And she did an adult sequel to them as well. And it, it just does feel like you're coming home. Are they adult sequels written as a diary as well? Because the, the first one is obviously the princess diaries is like her first person diary entries, isn't it? I haven't read yeah. them since I was very young, so I can't really remember. Yeah, so they are pretty, pretty much exactly the same. Um, 
And so then the adult sequel introduces um, a new character um, who is Mia's new sister. Um, so she is basically a younger character and Meg Cabot has done another spin-off series from Princess Olivia. Um, and actually you go to Genovia and also catch up with Mia and Michael through those books as well. Um, it just is everything to me. And I feel like when you read a book like that, then revisit it years later you just find something in yourself again that you know you discover an old part of yourself and I feel mm. it, it feels very nostalgic do you think that the fact that it is diary entries is one of the reasons that you connect with the character so much because it's literally like she's telling you her story you hear so much about her thoughts in a way that you might not necessarily in a prose book I think there are so many diary stories that are popular, especially for children, but there isn't really anything in that YA teen space as such. There's, so there's like Adrian Mole, but that's like obviously a very defining book about a boy. And I feel like The Princess Diaries is the first big one that is about a girl. Yeah, and Mia was also really socially and politically conscious, which I think is very unusual for a YA book. And in, in some ways it can feel like it dates it um, because conversations have moved on. But I think it was really nice as a young person to know that things like that could mean something to young people. And um, so one of the things is that Lily in the book is... Uh, you know she's a feminist and she talks about women's rights and she has her own public broadcast show where she um, talks about these things and I'd never seen anything in a book like that before because in, in YA I feel like um, a while back there was that whole thing of should teenagers be reading this or is this or is it too mature for teenagers but Meg Cabot never seems to worry about those things she just goes through it and and I, and I think shows such a nuance in all of her characters. I really liked the book as well when I was younger. And I didn't really, like, I really appreciate until recently how hard it is to write a story in diary entries because The Loneliest Girl in the Universe, which is the one set in space, it's, like, told from the point of view of one character just on her own. And so it reads, it when writing it, it was a lot like writing updates on her daily life in entry, diary entries and it was so difficult to tell a story through that and Meg Cabot just does it really well it doesn't come across as like forced or boring or anything so I definitely would pause before trying to write my own story told in diary entries so I wanted to talk about another YA that I read when I was very young and I've kept rereading and I since have read it as an adult and found that it really did stand up to how much I loved it and that's Ella Enchanted by Gail Carson Levine um, so if you don't know this uh, has been made into a film but the film is very different from the book uh, the, the basic idea is that it's kind of a retelling of Cinderella uh, as if the main character Ella is under a spell that means she has to do anything that people ask her to do. Um, and so she's grown up like literally anything anyone says that could be an order, she has to obey. But um, that's instead of making her really obedient, which was what it was supposed to do, it's instead made her very like strong world and determined to find ways to get round and outsmart these orders that she gets off her, like her uh, ugly stepsisters and her evil stepmom and like the villains and stuff. The main love interest is Prince Char, which stands for P Prince Charming. And Char 
I was obsessed with char. I was like the founding member of the Char Appreciation Society. And I read this book over and over again. I, I feel like love letters in novels are really underappreciated because they can come across as quite cheesy and old fashioned. But Ella Enchanted makes the best use of love letters. And I was rereading this recently and it was so good that I decided to like put love letters in one of my upcoming books just because like they really like stab you in the heart. They're so good. So I'm going to read you a little bit of one of Prince Charles' love letters to Ella Enchanted. Uh, He says, not many of my imagined conversations are with the Duke. Most of them are with you. I know what I would say if I were in Frell. I'd tell you at least three times how glad I was to see you. I'd describe my trip and our adventure when one of the pack horses shied at a rabbit and tore off. And then I might trail off in silence, lost in smiling at you. The trouble is, I can't guess at your response. You surprise me so often. I like to be surprised, but if I could supply your answers with confidence, I might miss you less. The remedy is obvious. You must write to me again and quickly and again and more quickly. Your very good friend, Char. And Lauren, you can read me a love letter any day. (laughs) (laughs) And there are so many of these in the book and they're so good. And the reason I think that it's such a good romance that like, I just latched onto it was that he really respects Ella and he doesn't just think she's really pretty but he likes her for like her core like personality traits and admires her and just thinks she's amazing like she he thinks that she has the funniest sense of humor and that she's really like skilled at languages because one of the things she's good at is like picking up languages so trolls and centaurs in this world can like speak different languages and she can talk to them and not many people can and yeah he just thinks that she's really witty and uh in the film he's played by Hugh Dancy which it's not a great film but that casting choice was perfect oh and he gives her a pet centaur uh, and they slide down banisters together and anyway the point is this was my princess diaries I loved this book and I read it again recently and it was really good and also it made me realise how much of it I put into my first book, The Next Together. The main character Kate's love interest, Matt, also just thinks that Kate is like super funny and witty and amazing and really clever and he's just in awe of her and also he kind of looks a bit like Hugh Dancy so I definitely was just like, right, Char is going to be my main character. Did you find when you were writing your first book that you put a lot of yourself or a lot of your influences into it, maybe even more so than your later books? Definitely, because the first book, you can just get away with making every character be facets of you. And then you can't do that with your next book because people would just read it and be like, these are the same characters as the first book. So you can't, you have to, you're like forced to actually invent personality traits rather than using your own. But the first book, because of that, because you are just taking the easy route and using yourself as the characters, at least for me, it was like both very like revealing to write and also really painful and like emotional. Like I was so much more invested in whether people like that book than I am in any of my others. What about you? Do you, do you find that? So I do find that, but I think the difference in us is that you wrote your first book and then even though you wrote the sequel, it's more of a prequel. Um, whereas for me, I'm working with the same characters. Mm-hmm. And so each one for me feels deeply personal still. They are direct sequels following the same characters 
Um, and it just, I, I mean, even now going into the second one, I am conscious of not writing the same story. Um, but my first one deals a lot with anxiety and that kind of thing, which is something that I had dealt with. And now the second one is all about um, a um, LGBT book club. And it's all really about identity and finding people who understand your identity, which is something I wish that I had had. As so I feel like all of my books, or certainly all of the books in the Paper and Heart Society series, series are written for me at a certain age and Mm. so I I feel like I put a lot of myself into them and and that can be good it can be cathartic but at the same time it's just draining to write sometimes yeah I can imagine that that is I think that's one of the big differences between like genre fiction and contemporary YA is that in contemporary books it's all about the characters and their life experiences and you can't you can have plot in there as well but then that's not necessarily what people are reading for and I think it like it would be very scary for me as an author to try and write a contemporary YA I don't know if I could pull it off just because it really does have to put so much a real emotion in there for it to work and I think you do that really well thank you (laughs) I think um for me one of the hardest things to read about when other people are reading it is that a lot of or not even a lot of people but some people have mentioned about plot and how for them the plot feels kind of predictable but I mean particularly the endings for me when I'm writing an ending I want something to be predictable and I want it to have that element of predictability because for me that feels very safe and I want to write books that you know even though the character has gone on a big journey and a big emotional journey I want them to have that ending and and I think for me when I'm approaching endings I want something that is going to make my heart sing almost because I put my characters through so much that I kind of want the ending for them that I would have wanted Mm. myself and I think when I'm looking back on the books that I do reread a lot like Ella Enchanted or The Princess Diaries they're not the ones that had like the big twist or surprised me they're the comfort reads that are kind of predictable in a way that just feels safe and that you you're there to spend time with the characters and that's the whole point of rereading right it's not because you're expecting it to do anything different it's just because you enjoyed the immersion of being in the world and you want to be there again yeah definitely and I find the same with films as well so I think one thing we really want to do in this podcast is talk about films and tv and other forms of story as well as books because I know um, that when I'm watching tv programs or I'm watching a film I'm also looking at the stories in them and I think that tv and film are doing really great things with stories that maybe are different to books so one of the tv programs I have been watching watching again and again and again recently is North and South which is an adaptation of the Elizabeth Gaskell book which I love I love the book a lot but I watched the film and it just felt so classic and so timeless to me Um, and there was something so safe about the ending and just those brief moments in it where it just feels so genius that I haven't been able to stop watching it and I know that I'm going to keep watching it again and again and again. It, it just does feel like you're watching something magic playing out on the screen. When I was at school, I used to go home f- at the end of the day and just re-watch the same things over and over again. And I didn't used to care that I'd seen it like a hundred times before. I'd still put it on after school. And I think that it's something that 
you can only really have the time to do when you're young is just to be like indulge in this thing and watch it so many times that you can memorize every frame and I think it like I really look back on it with a lot of nostalgia of like that was that was the life watching Mary Poppins and Bedknobs and Broomsticks over and over and over again. I used to do the same with um, books I was reading so before I started blogging and before I really got into uh, books and you know I wasn't just a casual reader anymore I was like a, a book fiend and before that I would just reread the same books over and over again and not even from start to finish I would just read my favourite scenes you remember those books and I feel like I remember those books when I'm writing those are the books I draw on because they made me feel something and you want to like capture that feeling yourself in your own writing I think every time you rewatch or reread something as well you are conjuring up those feelings that you felt the first time or the second time you were reading them so I feel like when each time you reread something you're reading it with the knowledge of all those other times you've read it and all the memories that come with it Mm. that's the appeal of fan fiction as well isn't it that you're just like this world and you want to live in it but you want to do it in slightly different ways every time and just spend more time with the characters so one of the ones that I used to watch and rewatch and rewatch was the 2005 uh, film of Pride and Prejudice um, which has Keira Knightley and Matthew McFadden in and this is like uh, a quite a modern adaptation of a classic I think I think if North and South I haven't watched it in a while but it's it is very much more it's like uh of the kind of classical adaptation like a tv series um it doesn't really stray too far from the book is that right would you say yeah so it definitely does follow the same trajectory of the book things are different but I think and we're gonna have an argument about this I'm sure (laughs) I feel like North and South is comparable with the 1995 Pride and Prejudice which I much prefer it's very different in that it's like they've taken the book and then they've just turned the dialogue into a script and made it into a tv show whereas the thing I liked about the 2005 Pride and Prejudice is that it's not like that it's it's modern it's fast-paced um you get to spend time with the characters when they're away from Lizzie Bennett like you go and see Mr Darcy and stuff um there's it's got a lot of humor in there that they've not necessarily taken like Jane Austen's humor directly from the book because she is very funny but they've made visual humor like the bit where uh, the mum is chasing the geese um and it there's just more and more things to discover every time you watch it in a very modern way that I used to love um what do you like about the 1995 version Lucy um that is a very good question I'm (laughs) gonna give you my answer now very seriously so (laughs) I think the reason that I prefer the 1995 adaptation to the 2005 is that for me the 2005 feels a bit too Hollywood it feels a bit too glamorous and I feel like when you compare the two I feel like if a Regency person came to the future and watched the 1995 adaptation they would be able to recognize parts of themselves in it the beauty Mm. standards very much conform to Regency standards the outfits are very much like that everything about it feels like it has been based on the book and I'm not saying that's a bad thing in the 2005 Pride and Prejudice 
prejudice but I think for me I love the book so much that I appreciate the 1995 for sticking to that the 2005 is very polished whereas the 1995 just feels realistic and I think as well a lot of that is to do with the camera work and um, it being slightly earlier it just feels very natural and very rustic I suppose Um, I, I feel like you're watching real people I think it's one of those things that is quite similar with sci-fi when you're watching classic adaptations you can definitely tell they represent not only the time that they're set but the era in which the tv or film was created um so like with sci-fi you can see like through how they build the like fancy futuristic like devices on the technology and the spaceships exactly when it was made and it's the same with classics in that you can see from like which parts of the fashion at the time they choose to retain because that is most fashionable right now when it's being made uh it's 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 unintentionally a lens through which you can view our society and our films now which is very cool I think. So one of the things that I always remember in The Pride and Prejudice is the bit where their hands touch when he uh, Darcy is helping Lizzie into the carriage and it's the very first time they've ever touched and the film has been going on for quite a while at that point and like he lets go of her hand and his hand flexes and it's just like such a tiny moment that really says a lot about like the society they live in and how little like they were allowed to actually speak to each other and communicate and ah, it just gets me every time. So North and South has loads of moments like that too and I think my favourite thing about watching period dramas is being able to see into the minds and kind of those rules of society that people were living in. Uh, So for us, when we're watching films now, it's normal to see loads of people kissing or taking it even more seriously um, in (laughs) films. But you just wouldn't have that then. You wouldn't have that in novels or anything like that. So I think it's those brief moments of intimacy that mean so much more than they ever would do now so one of my favorite scenes from north and south and i think it might be in the book but i know for sure it is in the tv series is um a moment when margaret the main character and mr thornton are um, apart from each other and they are separating and they are both looking through a window or he's looking through a window um, down at her um, and they, you know, you'll get exactly what both characters are feeling in that moment and yet in reality when they were filming they call it something because they were filmed hundreds of miles apart and yet they look like they're looking directly at each other it's special in a way that like having a sex scene in a modern tv show isn't it just amplifies everything a lot more when it's so something so small as a hand touch or a glance my favorite book of all time which i think leads very nicely on from both pride and prejudice and north and south is Shirley by Charlotte Bronte. It's taken me a long time to get a Bronte reference in there, <laughs> but I'm going to nerd out now. <laughs> I was expecting it to come a lot earlier on in the episode. I want to explain your connection with the Brontes. 
Yeah, so I am actually the Bronte Society's young ambassador. So I've been working for the past year and a half with the Bronte Parsonage Museum and the Bronte Society um, to promote the Brontes and all kinds of things, their novels and more about the society to young people and to my audience. So last year I did a Bronte book club with them um, and this year I'm doing more stuff as well. Um, so I am the biggest Bronte nerd ever um, and Shirley by Charlotte Bronte is my favourite book closely followed by Wuthering Heights and also Emily's poetry so you're gonna hear <laughs> just all of them <laughs> all of them you're gonna hear lots of Bronte references I'm sure from me um, but Shirley is my favourite book and actually talking about Pride and Prejudice I think that Shirley is Charlotte's answer to Pride and Prejudice so when Charlotte was writing Shirley um, she actually wrote a letter to G.H. Lewis who was actually George Eliot's partner um, and she was talking about reading Jane Austen so Charlotte said when she had read Pride and Prejudice that she had not seen Pride and Prejudice till she'd read a sentence of his and then she got the book and studied it and what did I find, she says, an accurate daguerreotyped portrait of a commonplace face, a carefully fenced, highly cultivated garden with neat borders and delicate flowers, but no glance of a bright, vivid physiognomy, no open country, no fresh air, no blue hill, no bonny beck. I should hardly like to live with her ladies and gentlemen in their elegant but confined houses. These observations will probably irritate you, but I shall run the risk. Charlotte did not think particularly highly <laughs> of Pride and Prejudice. Clearly not. <laughs> I love the idea of her thinking about the confined houses as opposed to, I, I suppose, the stereotypical Bronte landscape of the wide open moors. And like she mentions, the Bonnie Becks. Um, she was just completely different to Jane Austen and yet when it came to writing Shirley after she'd written Jane Eyre and the critics slated it for being very coarse and immoral they didn't really understand how Jane Eyre could be like she was so she started writing Shirley and it was supposed to be more toned down um, and it was supposed to be almost like a Jane Austen novel uh, but it ended up not being like that at all so I don't know about you but when you read Jane Austen she doesn't really talk about um, the political environment of the day it's implied in certain areas like in Mansfield Park um, but you don't really get the political side of it um, but in Shirley Charlotte is really dealing with the industrial revolution it's very similar to north and south and that it's talking about um, you know kind of industry in the north and the workers who live there I don't know if she necessarily deals with that in as good a way as Elizabeth Gaskell does um, but at the heart of the story Shirley is about a girl called Caroline Halston and her friendship with Shirley Kilder um, and before Shirley was published Shirley was actually a man's name and so when the character Shirley was born her father wanted to call her Shirley if she was a boy and then when she turned out to be a girl they called her Shirley anyway so Shirley nice. was Shirley was the start of the name Shirley as a woman's name both of my grandmothers are called Shirley so that's incredible 
they owe their names to Charlotte Bronte. <laughs> I find it really interesting what you were saying about how it kind of uses it shows more of the rest of the world like the industrial side of what's going on at the time um, which is something that Jane Austen doesn't always touch on and something that I found that does something similar is this series uh, called Shades of Milk and Honey by Mary Robinette Cowell which is a sci-fi series where it's kind of a Jane Austen pastiche uh, but they've all got magic and so it's from the point of view of like a Lizzie Bennet standing character uh, who has this uh, talent of, for magic where they can draw colours and lights in the air. And it's used as kind of a lady's pastime to just do uh, entertain at parties, kind of like uh, tell a story while also illustrating it in the air with this magic. And the first book uh, is kind of a very Jane Austen style romance. It, the magic is there, but it's not really the focus of the story. And then as the series goes on, it like expands out of this world set in this time when Pride and Prejudice is set. And it, you see all the things going on that Jane Austen doesn't talk about so uh, all about the slave trade and how these rich English families who can afford to spend all their time just lounging around in the countryside in beautiful manners having romances with each other where their money is coming from and they go out to the West Indies and see some of the workers out there and it's um, it was really mind-blowing to me that when you think of this era you do have like this uh, vision in your head of Jane Austen type characters just living their lives and then uh, actually there's so much more interesting things going on in the world that maybe aren't as peaceful and comforting to read about but there's you can learn so much more history from them and I think it's interesting that the Brontes clearly felt that way as well and they were trying to show that kind of industrial side of the area and region they lived in in their writing I really want to read that series now I think <laughs> I'm gonna have to go away and start reading it um, it's so good <laughs> but I think as well I think that does raise an interesting question of what books should be should books be political and should they speak out about things or like Jane Austen are books allowed just to be books um because one of the things with Jane Austen as well is that her books have been very popular during times of war so a lot of soldiers during the first world war and the second world war would read Jane Austen novels because they are that perfect escape and that reminder of something that is good even mm. if they're not fully reflective of society as a whole I think that books should be allowed to serve multiple purposes. And it's something I feel a lot as an author as well, especially as a sci-fi author, is that everything I write somehow is about climate change and global warming because that's the big thing. Like we're not in the middle of a war, but we do have this thing looming over us that affects everything you write. Even if you don't intend for it to have a political message, it's going to come out because that is what is at the forefront of our minds all the time at this point in history and I think it's really interesting when you can see that in authors writing and they never intended to make it political either but it's just so clear that that's what's on their minds. I think as authors now we are figures of social change and I think it is important to be aware of what has come before and also you know in our writings to know how influential we are on minds do we want other people to read our books and feel excluded from the stories or do we want to write something that actually 
in a few years time people are going to think well why did they write it like that why have they written that I think you have to be constantly aware as a writer or as an author um, that you have a platform and you've got to use it for good and also even if you've got the best intentions as an author it's hard to do that because like you were saying that your next book uh, is about an LGBT society well just the terminology that you're going to have your characters use you have no way of knowing whether in five or ten years that's going to be the same terminology that people are using and so you have to find a balance between being accurate and representative of people now and also making sure that it is going to last and uh, that the core message is going to be respectful even if the language or some of the things that are discussed have have aged with the book so I wanted to talk about a science fiction classic uh, to match Lucy's classic classics Northern Lights by Philip Pullman I was obsessed with this this was another one that I read a lot when I was younger and one of the reasons I really liked it was that it's a fantasy book with talking animals and witches and magic but also science and it bases a lot of the magic on explanations of science so there's alternate universes and dark matter and interdimensional travel and it just really captured my imagination as a child who wanted to grow up to be a scientist it felt like I could have these fictional worlds that also appealed to that side of me that wanted the explanations to how things worked that was always asking why 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 and particularly the character of Mary Malone from the third book who is a female physicist who has her own lab at Oxford Uni where she studies physics and it like I used to want to be her so much and it was just this amazing uh, character that I can remember from very young that was an inspiration and a role model. Another character that makes those books like the classic that they I think they are is Lyra Blackwa who is one of the best female characters of all time because she's just so unlikable. She's spiky and loud and just completely infuriatingly annoying at all times. She doesn't listen to anybody and she gets herself in the tangle all the time because of it but she never gives up and she always finds a way out of her problems and she'll definitely always have my heart because of that another thing that I can still keep coming back to these books and rereading them over and over again is because they just handle such adult topics and I read them at 12 years old and I loved the plot and I thought it was great action scenes and then I reread them and I realized that They're actually about religion and atheism and the creation of the universe and heaven and earth and angels. And they handle all these really difficult, big topics that if you pitched it to someone, you didn't you wouldn't think you'd be able to write in a children's book. And yet it really works because it's a a real crossover book in that there is something for every age in there. And as I get older, I'm definitely going to continue to reread it because I'm sure I'll come keep finding new things and the depiction of God in the book is something especially that will just stay with me forever because the God of Northern Lights is just insane like uh, who could have thought you could get away with doing something like that in a children's book and obviously these books also uh, introduce demons which you probably know even if you've not read them is kind of the idea that everybody has a, a animal that represents their soul or their spirit and they can change forms when you're a child and then as you approach puberty or adulthood they become a fixed form that represents who you are as a person and that is an idea that has just taken hold in pop culture alongside like Hogwarts houses as a way of determining people's personalities like you want to know what their demon would be and the fact that that is just one element of these this massive 
series of books like one of the least important elements I think as well like the story would still happen without the demons they're just thrown in there as this excellent detail that has taken over the world like it blows my mind what would your demon be I want to know what you think yours would be well I'm a big fan of like water and swimming but I also am very solitary I like being alone I would like to avoid all of the people if I could um so it's something like a a marine animal like a manatee or a dolphin or a whale or an otter something like that I don't want to say too firmly what it would be I'm going to give my leave my open to change as I grow up (laughs) I think that is the nice thing about it and actually one of the things I've struggled with Harry Potter and Hogwarts houses is that I've never really felt like I fit into one set house and you're supposed to choose when you're 11 and then that's it for life (laughs) I know I can't imagine choosing something when I was 11 and then having to stick with it because I changed so much between even 11 and 12 I think at that age you are constantly changing and you you should be expected to constantly change I think it's just a part of growing up um I don't know what my demon would be I've never actually read Northern Light I've read (laughs) (laughs) shock horror um I just didn't really grow up with it nobody that I knew had really read it um and I came late to Harry Potter as well so I kind of skipped straight to YA I started reading YA when I was about nine or ten um so I missed out on a lot of children's books because I just went straight past them I don't really know what my demon would be um so I really love kingfishers they are my favorite bird and I love birds in general they're one of the things I'm most passionate about other than books in life I know the kingfishers on my stretch of river by sight I watch them a lot um and kingfishers are quite territorial birds so they spend a lot of time out of the year on their own um they fight a lot if they come into contact with other kingfishers um but when they pair up they pair up as well um and can be together but as soon as the young fledge the nest just after they become independent they're kicked off and they have to go it in the world alone so they really do like being alone which I think is something that we have in common in our choice <laughs> um we've both gone for things that like being alone um which I'm not really sure why we're doing a podcast together in that case yeah. but I think the reason that we are such good friends is that we enjoy talking to each other but I think that we enjoy each other's silence as well and so <laughs> We don't have to be constantly in each other's pockets. I think that we give each other the space that we need. (laughs) Being silent is very important, but maybe not when we're recording a podcast. (laughs) That could make for an interesting episode. If this is a good series, we will finish with a bonus episode where it's just silence. I think it sounds excellent. So I didn't read Northern Lights and I was late to Harry Potter. So I recently have been reading the Nevermore series by Jessica Townsend. The first book is Nevermore and I'm currently reading the sequel, which is brilliant. Um, And I loved reading these and I loved discovering them because I felt like when I read the first book, Nevermore, I thought that it was must have been like that feeling when people discovered the magic of Harry Potter, um, because it really does feel like a timeless 
children's classic. So it's about this young girl called Morgan Crow who has been destined to die on her 11th birthday. And then when it comes to her 11th birthday, she's whisked away by Jupiter North to the land of Nevermore, where she has to enter a competition to become part of the wondrous society. It just feels very magical. There is a talking cat called a Magicat. Jupiter North is one of those characters that stayed with me like he was such a great invention fictional creation like Jessica Townsend did really well there I think the thing as well about Nevermore is I feel like it corrects a lot of the mistakes that were made in Harry Potter because Harry Potter is great but I think the longer it goes on the more people find things that were wrong with it or maybe they think that could have been better and so I feel like Jupiter is this Hagrid type figure who looks after Morrigan but at the same time he is flawed and his flaws are acknowledged. It feels like there's a world beyond what's on the page that does make sense it's not like Harry Potter where you have like the prisoner of Azkaban uses these time travel devices that are never mentioned in other books even though they would be very useful and it just it it feels like it's a more complete universe. I think it does and I think as well um, a lot of things are compared to Harry Potter you often hear books with the phrases it's the new um, but I think Nevermore is a separate book. I think it is the next stage on from Harry Potter and I don't think that Harry Potter should be considered the be all and end all of children's fiction. I feel like we can take the lead from it and you know these new books can take us in different directions while also acknowledging the important work that Harry Potter did for children's fiction. I think as well when you're writing magic it's very easy to just throw yourself into it and use every fun idea that you have but that's very dangerous because you need to feel like the world has consequences and that there are limits to what the characters can achieve and that there will be repercussions if they do certain things. And I think that that's something as a writer that I find really difficult because I do want to make an exciting book for the reader that keeps them guessing and uh, surprises them. While also, if you're writing about magic, you then need to follow your own the laws of your universe in a way uh, that is kind of one of the requirements of being able to do that. Do you find, I mean, what do you think the differences are between science fiction and fantasy? Um, would you consider using magic in a science fiction book? <laughs> <laughs> Amazing, Oliver. <laughs> so would I use fantasy magic in a science fiction book? There are some really great ones that do. Once and Future is a retelling of the Arthur legends that is set in space so it mixes sci-fi with magic in a really great way there's a scene where like Merlin is holding onto the back of a rocket as it leaves earth that is just brilliant um I think I would I would be really interested in doing that but I would have to think about it a lot before I started just to see what I was trying like I'm very aware that you need to be saying something new when you do something like that and having a reason for putting magic in a science fiction universe uh, that makes sense. So one of the reasons I uh, respond to sci-fi is that uh, I, I can see the science backing up the story, even if it's uh, kind of beyond our limits of technology at the minute, you can see where what would lead to that point. And that kind of links it to reality for me. And so if I was going to go and then put magic in that situation, it would have to be for a specific reason that 
uh, did something that that was a message, if that makes sense. I think that's a really interesting question for me as well. In writing contemporary, we're almost on opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of you're writing something that is based in science and is real to an extent, whereas mine is solidly based in something that is real and it, it feels like it could happen to real people um, and I think as as a contemporary writer I'm conscious particularly in my writing of writing something that does feel solidly real um, rather than some contemporaries feel slightly um, exaggerated or it feels too neat of a happily ever after or it feels like there's quite a complete ending I think the luxury in working on a series like I'm writing is that there can be um, untold stories and there can be loose ends because for me that's what life is and I never want a reader to go away from my writing feeling like the story can't happen to them because it's too perfect. You don't want to jump the shark as well you want to keep it be true to the vision you had of the series as you started the first book not constantly be raising the stakes for the readers you pick up along the way which I think is something that Game of Thrones has suffered from. I just read an article that said that the writers would go on Reddit and look at the threads discussing the plot and if someone had guessed what was going to happen they would then go and change the series uh, ending to like make sure that nobody had guessed which I think is a crazy way to approach writing you can't keep upping the stakes like that you just uh, there's a point when you just have to be true to your original vision because otherwise the reader will know and it won't feel like a complete work it will feel like constantly accelerating connected stories <laughs> yeah I think as well as a writer you've got to be aware that you can't make everyone happy and you've you've got to write with somebody in mind whether that is yourself or a specific person when you try and appease everybody or in that case when you're trying to do something and make sure that nobody can guess what you're doing actually you are moving away from that original idea of a story or I think you're moving away from the credibility of it as well um, and I think for me as a writer I think it's that credibility and you know even if you're writing a fantasy story you still want that element of it being real um, and you still want it to feel like it could happen to you for me that's why I like reading fantasy when I do read it I want to read something that I feel almost could be true or almost could happen and as a writer even when I feel like I need to surprise the reader that's not the same as when I'm reading a book when I'm reading a book I'm really usually pleased if I guess the ending and if I feel like it's given me clues and earned that twist then I think it's a successful piece of writing whereas if it's something where they have just thrown any ending in there even if it doesn't obey the rules of their universe as a reader I'm not or as a viewer for tv uh, I'm not as satisfied and I think that's something that I've struggled with a lot with my favorite tv shows as I've got older is that I can appreciate the kind of uh, special effects and lights of something like Doctor Who but as I uh, improve as a writer I can see that there's nothing there it's just special effects <laughs> because there's no writing backing up the the plot they haven't obeyed the laws of their own universe speaking of tv and um other forms of media what kind of thing are you obsessed with at the moment <laughs> i am in the good omens bad place at the minute <laughs> i have watched it through six times <laughs> 
which is kind of embarrassing. It's I just still, such a comforting viewing experience. I still need to watch it. So I've read the book and I've been saving it to watch. I don't know I'm, what I'm waiting for, but I'm saving <laughs> it for the right moment. And I'm really excited. Lucy, you've made the right decision because it will change your life when you do. And I, I'm very excited for that. <laughs> I'm mildly, I'm mildly obsessed with Michael Sheen, um, and so I am waiting for the right moment. <laughs> He's just such a good human, and he loves his daughter so much. It's amazing. <laughs> I was listening to an interview with him a while back, actually, where he was talking about how he does all his acting work and everything that he does so that he can you know subsidize and do his charity work which I think is such a lovely way of looking at it (laughs) he's great and also I'm really happy that uh, Good Omens has done so well because it meant that Netflix have commissioned the Sandman series and the Sandman graphic novels are one of my favorite pieces of literature by Neil Gaiman uh, and I'm very excited to see what Netflix and Neil Gaiman do with that one of the things that I'm obsessed with watching at the moment is Killing Eve (laughs) season two I am in love I just finished watching it this week as well. It's so good. I watched it and then I watched it again with my parents and it re-watching it again reminded me of just how fantastic it is, but also watching it with someone else and knowing what's going to happen, but knowing that they don't know what's going to happen. I think that was such an amazing experience to watch it like that. Um, I think it is something that improves as well every time you watch it because you know you can spot the genius behind it um and I was kind of worried going into season two because um it's written by Emerald Fennell instead of um Phoebe Waller-Bridge um but actually I in some ways I think I preferred season two um which might be sacrilege to say but I thought that Emerald Fennell did such a fantastic job I loved her humor um which I think is so dark and morbid in places and just feels strangely quintessentially British which I I don't think the three match up but somehow it worked. It is such a specific sense of humour combined with like the most artistic cinematography and these complicated characters like is is Eve a psychopath? I still don't know. What is Carolyn up to? Like she's so dodgy. Like every character has so many layers and it just it feels like you could get to know them as real people and they would hold up to that they're not just living for the action on the screen right at that second they have lives beyond it which is just very rare to find in a tv show it subverts everything that the genre has done before um and i I still don't know what to expect going into season three i just do not know what's going to happen and I, I just I can't anticipate it whatsoever which I think is so nice usually you can see a direction something's going to go in um but at the end of season one I didn't know at the end of season two now I'm just not sure how they're going to work it but I'm really excited so I think it's clear from like how much we talked about writing when we were discussing those books that as writers we use reading as a bit of a tool to help our writing um and I don't know about you but I definitely approach reading as part of my job I definitely do as well and um something I'm trying to do now is I feel like when I'm writing I feel like 
I've got into the mindset that if I'm not writing, then I'm not working. And actually, it is the opposite, I think, as a writer. Um, you could be doing nothing and you could still be working because you're still thinking or when you're reading. I think I read differently now I'm a writer, but everything I read, even if I'm reading a book that I hate, helps me in some way to identify where I want to go with my writing. Oh, absolutely. Thinking critically about the bad things that books have done means that you'll know not to do them. And thinking critically about the good things they've done means you can steal all the shiny bits and put them in your own books. And I have found that Goodreads is a really good tool for this. Whenever I read a book, uh, I will shelve it and tag it with kind of the tropes that it has that are things that I want to include in my own writing. And if I recognise one that Uh, has inspired me for a particular book which doesn't always happen immediately sometimes it'll be published and then afterwards I'll remember a book and be like wow Ella Enchanted really inspired that a lot Uh, I make sure to tag it on Goodreads uh, just so I'm aware of where my influences are and where things are coming from and how I can progress in the future based on those as an example so it's been really interesting like listening to you talk about your favorite books and see how you use them in your writing because it's given me so many new thoughts about my favorite books as well so this was a really useful episode for me as just a writing tool I guess uh, which shows that podcasts are the future (laughs) I don't think it has been useful for me because it's going to mean I've got to read lots more books now and I won't get any work done because I'll be reading (laughs) all your recommendations you've got to read Northern Lights before the BBC show starts. I have. I've really got to read it. So we really hope you have enjoyed the first episode of Dog-Eared Pages. We're really excited for everything else to come. The next episode is going to be about summer reading and you can find links to everything we've discussed in the show notes. My new book, The Starlight Watchmaker, came out uh, recently. It is a novella set on a futuristic planet that is a very expensive academy run for aliens. And it's about a very lonely android watchmaker who Uh, gets uh, his life quiet life interrupted by a very pompous duke who comes and barges into his attic and drags him off on an adventure so if you'd like to check that out it is out now if you'd like to talk to us more about what we've discussed in today's episode you can find us on twitter i am at lucy the reader and i'm lauren underscore e underscore james a bit more complicated than yours i think (laughs) see you next time bye